Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to Grief to Growth Podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, best-selling author, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he is here to help you grow where you've been planted by the difficulties in life. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. It is his sincere hope this episode helps you today. Hey, everybody. This is Brian Smith back with another episode of Grief to Growth. And today I've got with me Kimberly Clark Sharp. And we're going to talk. Kimberly's had a fascinating life and does some uh, really amazing things now. But she's had a near-death experience we're going to talk about. But first, I'll give a little bit more about her background. She's the author of the book, After the Light, The Spiritual Path to Purpose. Um, we're going to talk about the book. She's the founder of the Seattle International Association of Near-Death Studies, or as most of, most of us call it, IONS which is the world's oldest and largest support group for near-death experiencers. Uh, Kim was named one of the 40 most influential people under the age of 40 in the Pacific Northwest in 1987 for, the, for her work in the field of death and dying. She's a founder of the Department of Social Work at Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Institute, our research center, I should say. Uh, she's a pioneer in the field of critical care social work, international conference and workshop speaker. She's been published in many journals, textbooks, and magazines. She's a consultant to the news and entertainment industry. Uh, she was a co-teacher of terminal illness seminar at the School of Medicine at the University of Washington, a clinical assistant professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Washington, and she has a master's of social work from the University of Washington. So Kim, that's quite a resume, but welcome to Grief to Growth. And all that, I'm actually a happy wife and mother. Yeah. So I, you know, I, life's been good. I'm, yeah. So you're you're obviously, uh, I would say, somewhat of an expert in the field of death and dying. Did that start with your near-death experience? No. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So tell me Not how it started. Not on my level of awareness. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, but after my near-death experience, I was uh, pushed into it, I would say. Okay. Uh, by, I say God. But I don't mean that in any um, religious or gender thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I use the pronoun him or his, but that's just my cultural brought up. You know, I mean, I'm a Lutheran, pretty mainstream Americana. So when I pray, I pray to God. And mm-hmm. when I give thanks, I give thanks to God. And... uh God made me do it. That's bottom line. This is all, you know, this is all God's plan. I'm just 
putting one foot in front of the other and going forward and getting my occasional atagorals and yeah. So what got you started in, in being interested in, in death and dying then if it wasn't the near death experience? Well, um, just for the sake of reference, maybe we should start with my near death experience, which then we can like launch from that. Yeah. Start wherever you like. Sure. All the interview. But <laughs> no, start wherever you feel comfortable. Okay. So I was a college student. Um, May 25th, 1970, I was uh, home for the weekend from college. I was with my dad in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. I'm from Mm -hmm. eastern Kansas. And uh, we were at the Department of Motor Vehicles. It was about time for me to, you know, get a car, get a license, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was in perfect health as a young person. And yet, uh, I'm going to... Actually, Brian, tell you my dad's perspective, because it's different from mine. So according to my father, uh, and I'm so glad I had a witness to this event. I mean, mm-hmm. that's handy, in addition to my medical records. But yeah, um, I was feeling fine. But I don't remember anything beyond turning to my dad while I was waiting for my number to come up, which I realize is kind of a cosmic joke. Wow. Right? Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of jokes like that in my life now. But anyway, that is indeed. I was waiting for my number to come up, and um, I told my dad that I wanted to sit down because I felt funny, and he said there weren't any chairs. That's it for my memory on what I call top side, hmm. which is like the reality, of consensual reality, if you will. Mm-hmm. So what he said is that I managed to sign all the papers appropriately and we were leaving the building and as we were exiting, my complexion was white on white and uh, must have been pretty pale because I'm Northern European descent. This is pretty white. Mm-hmm. So um, even whiter. Mm-hmm. And then I collapsed into and through his arms. Dead weight is heavier than living weight. So uh, he could not hold me. So out we were on the sidewalk, and there happened to be uh, a uniformed nurse passing by who ran over and determined I wasn't breathing and didn't have a pulse. So uh, the volunteer fire department from Shawnee Mission, Kansas, was called, as well as an ambulance from St. Luke's Medical Center in Kansas City, Missouri, which was the closest trauma center. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were interested in providing for me an actual trauma center. So uh, the medics arrived first. Again, according to my father, they had a brand new ventilator, portable ventilator, Hmm. called the Anderson ventilator for those who were old enough to remember that were in healthcare at that time. Anyway, they opened up the packaging and applied the seal to my nose and mouth. There were two functions on this new ventilator. One was to, of course, push air in which is what you want. The other, though, was to extract objects that might be blocking the airway. Mm-hmm. Why we tell our kids don't run with you know candy in your mouth. Or, right. In fact, if this happens in a restaurant, it's actually called a cafe coronary if the airway is blocked by food. Hmm. So uh, that was the vacuum mode. And as it turns out, because it was new and they had practiced it, the default was in vacuum. So they flicked the switch to ventilate and instead literally sucked the life out of me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, it was immediately apparent what had happened. They flipped the switch again, pumped the air in, 
but enough of my lungs had come in contact with themselves. Our lungs are sticky suckers. And if it's like a lung collapse Mm -hmm. under these circumstances, it takes ICU ventilation and time and steady pressure to safely open them up. Well, that part of my lungs, which had already come in contact because of that vacuum, it just, again, just sucked everything out of my lungs. The high pressure of air going into my body could not separate my lung tissues from themselves entirely. Wow. Somewhat, I guess, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. So the air had to go somewhere. Fortunately, a lot hit my brain because um, what I'm about to tell you was an hour and a half, according to my father between collapse when we were leaving the DMV and when we entered the emergency room at St. Luke. So it was a long resuscitation. Wow. They were basically working on a kid. You know, they, I look younger than I do now anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, the air, though, went to, found its way to my skin. And I literally, Brian, I blew up like a flesh balloon. It's called epithelial emphysema. Hmm. and um, it's very hard to recover from that. So that was a hot mess. So the medics, um, and bless their hearts, you know, no one was mad at them. It was just a thing. But they turned to my father and said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And then a man that my dad has always called the Good Samaritan came from behind. Now, a pretty large crowd, because I don't know about where you live, but in eastern Kansas, if there's somebody dead on the sidewalk, you know, it's news, even without the internet at that time. It's like, yeah. you know, get on down to the DMV. There's a girl dead on the sidewalk. So that was me. And there were a lot of people. But this man came from behind this crowd, mm-hmm. swearing like a mule skinner, and um, did what we now call citizen CPR. And then he gave up and turned to my dad and said, I'm not getting a blankety blank blank, blankety blank blank, blankety blank 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 thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was pronounced twice, basically. Wow. And then my father's memory, you're a grieving parent. My dad went into shock. He has no memory of anything after that for a while. Uh, somebody brought him a chair. He doesn't know where that came from. He remembers a lot of hoses on the ground. But then the ambulance had arrived. My body was in the back of the ambulance, and I was breathing on my own, although I was still unconscious. Hmm. So my dad jumped in the back of the vehicle. Off we went to St. Luke's. Things went sour again in the emergency room. But again, I hate to give away the ending to a good book. And I wrote a good book, but um, I lived. Yeah. And I hope that's clear in this interview. I am alive. Yes, it's very clear. So that's what my dad remembers. Um, I, by the way, I did pull my medical records because I thought when I, when I wrote After the Light, this book, I didn't want some journalist getting access to records that I hadn't viewed myself. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing um, because you can't chart like this anymore. One of the first lines in the ER was uh, cause of collapse unknown at this time, question mark coronary. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what, what did me in basically was they called it the snafu with a ventilator. And I thought, what? I'm a snafu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I'm a snafu. So anyway, what I remember is uh, pretty much none of that. I first remember a woman's voice to my left saying, I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse. 
And with the same measure of patience that I am demonstrating right now, I turned to her and said, of course you're getting a pulse. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of a snotty college kid. It's like, (laughs) hey, (laughs) wake up. Yeah. She ignored me. And she got more and more agitated. So I was in the awkward position of not really comforting her, but trying. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm right here. So then, I don't know, Brian, did I get into a near-death snit? I, I, I don't know. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. I found myself immediately in a different environment. I knew I wasn't alone. Um, it was warm, kind of balmy even. I, it was pleasant. Hmm. Uh, but I couldn't see who I was with or where I was because I was surrounded by gray material like fog. And if I may interrupt myself here and just say, I've had a lot of time to examine my near-death experience. As it turns out, during and after, a little bit after World War II, there were more movies made globally about the afterlife than any other time in cinema history. Mm -hmm. The world was in kind of like pandemic mode, but it was war. Exactly. Yeah. So there were movies made about the afterlife in our allied countries of Europe and such, but also Japan and Italy and Germany and, of course, America. Of all the movies I've collected, and I've been a collector, they all have this foggy material in it, every last one. So I wonder if that isn't a place we all might go to or pass through, Hmm. or it's just a collective human consciousness. Don't know, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I knew I was waiting for something. It was like I was at the airport. I had my boarding pass. I was just waiting for my road to be called. I mean, it was such confidence that I was in the right place. And then what I seemed to be waiting for showed up big time. Underneath me was a, oh my gosh, if I had been on earth, it would have just boomed the whole earth. So much energy. It was a light, though. It was a light brighter than a million suns, if that's possible. I haven't even looked into our own sun. Mm -hmm. But I could look at this light as if I had eyeballs. I was seeing. But my eyeballs would have been back in my physical body. So what the heck was I beholding? Mm -hmm. But I was beholding what I call God. But it doesn't, again, matter what you call. I'm really happy with my creator. I like that. Mm -hmm. Um, This light came up, it's blasted all the foggy material away, and it just, I have a hard time describing the light. I mean, all these years later, I get touched because of the love. Mm-hmm. It was it was so much love, uh, and it was directed at me personally. Mm. And uh, But yet I also knew it was just for everybody and everything. We are created and loved by God, and and it moves me, obviously, to this day. It humbles me, too. I, I had done nothing in my life that I thought deserved this. But mm. there it was. And it, it spread out in all directions. And it was as if I could simultaneously see in all directions. And it was linear. It went on and on and on. And I had the presence of mind to go, my gosh, I'm beholding eternity. Mm. It was eternity. But at the same time, in a way I can't describe, sorry, I get Albert Clem, but. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm sincere anyway, but um, it was also endlessly layering on itself. 
and I, I'm just kind of downloading information. I, I don't know, download is a good word, but mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't available to me at that time. Right. But it was like I was also not only beholding time eternally, but dimensions. And it too was endless, which opens up all kinds of questions about everything like you know we, we live in a three-dimensional world right science theoretical science string theory and stuff has gone up to maybe seven i saw a lot more than that hmm. um and then uh i got to ask questions that seemed profound <laughs> but, and it was it was really odd because well i asked questions that any anyone would ask like you know well why are we born Mm-hmm. Things I had never thought of in my age at that time. Mm-hmm. And I was told that we wanted to, you know, we wanted to be born. We wanted this earthly life and all that it would bring. It was a decision made with our creator. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked about pain and suffering. And it was, you know, basically how we find our spiritual center again. If everything were cushy, why be born? This is life on earth is not the place for cushy experiences. They can be included, but it's not exclusive. It's you know back to no atheists in the foxholes kind of thing. But yeah, right. it, we're we're you know put into the grinder. Um, but the answers I got back, I wasn't learning a thing. I was remembering. And mm-hmm. if I had had a head, I would have thunked it. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Went on like that. And then I was told what no one in that position in the presence of God and love would want to hear, but that's, I had to go back. Hmm. So I said, no, again, anyone would. And it was, yes, no, yes, no. It was like this volley. So I'm here to tell you, you can argue with God, but (laughs) in God's realm, God will win. Here we have free will elsewhere not so much so I was sent back and then by golly I had not passed my driver's test because I couldn't parallel park within three feet of the curb right. still can't to this day <laughs> I want one of those self-parking parallel anyway don't have one yeah. um, so couldn't get within three feet of the curb I've just had the most profound experience possible in my opinion sent back and I missed my body by three feet my physical body and I turned and I made a joke it was like I can't even park myself stay with us we'll be right back hey there I'm testing out a new feature I'd love to get your feedback on it it's called fan mail and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast so look for the link that says send me a text you can ask a question for a future podcast you can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. So, So, um, I'm sorry, but at this point, are you still on the sidewalk or you're at the hospital at this point? No, I was still on the sidewalk. Okay, okay. Yeah, thank you. Good question. And please help me focus, because I get lost in my experience. I can dip back in and be there in a heartbeat and I'm there. So thank you for that. Yeah. Still on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. 
Didn't look like the person I remember, but I identified the body as my body, but not as myself, which is key to this very moment in time. Yeah. But if the Kim that is Kim was not in that body. What I self-identified was not in that body. And again, I had eyeballs. So what the heck was I watching with? Mm-hmm. Makes no sense on a physical plane. Mm-hmm. But there it was. And then I thought, well, now what? It, was, it wasn't scary or anything. It was just like, now what? And then I saw a man that I didn't recognize bend over and touch my mouth with his mouth. That was the Good Samaritan. Mm. Uh, didn't hear the swearing. But uh, as soon as his mouth touched mine, I went over to above my body and then dropped through that man's body into my own body. Wow. And as I went through him, I knew everything he was feeling and realized that what he was primarily feeling was compassion. And compassion is a very strong form of love. Mm-hmm. Here I'd just been with the greatest love of all. So it was like a lighthouse. It was my beacon. It was I was following, instead of following the money, I was following the love. And then I was back in my body and it stunk. It was horrible. Uh, I was conscious, but not conscious. I was conscious of being in my body. And mm-hmm. I felt like I was running around this cold, dark prison. Mm-hmm. Brian, it was really horrible. It was, it was extremely unpleasant. By the way, back to my admitting medical records, my body temperature when I got to the emergency room was 86. Oh, wow. So that's a pleasant pool temperature in the summer, but... yeah. That's not that's for being alive. Yeah. So I was, I was, no wonder I was cold and running around in the dark. So I called out for God again. I'm such a whiner. So I was whining for God, please take me, please, please. I hate your peace. So God showed up again, how kind, mm-hmm. and said, All right, already, you know, and then opened a portal or a window like thing to my right. And there was my heaven. And it was so beautiful. It was like a meadow. It was endless vista of grass that was, you know, blowing in kind of a breeze. Again, the balminess. Mm-hmm. Off in the distance was kind of a low fence and then some low trees. And frankly, it looked like Kentucky. Hmm. You would know what Kentucky looks like. because I lived your, there for 10 years. Well, yeah. then you know. Yeah. Kentucky is my heaven. Skeptics say, oh, near-death experiencers get what they expect. I have yet to visit the great state of Kentucky. Oh, really? I've I've never been there. you got to go. I've been there before. You would think that it would have been on my path. You know, Cincinnati Airport is close as I've ever been. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and watching the Kentucky Derby on TV. But I've seen, of course, many images of Kentucky. And I Mm -hmm. go, that's my heaven. Kentucky's my heaven. So the thing about this grass stuff, though, is that I was aware of the consciousness, if you will, of every single blade of grass. Hmm. Every blade of grass was alive, electrically alive. And the colors were not earthly. The grass was a shade of green. um, And I like green. Look around me Mm -hmm. when I wear green's like my color. Mm -hmm. And uh but the green was just, it was so intense. Mm-hmm. And the blue sky was way more intense. Sapphire, mm-hmm. 
blue kind of, but brighter and more vibrant than anything. Mm. And I loved it. So I was told, okay, if you cross that border, though, that's it for you. You're not coming back. So I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> Off it went. <laughs> Almost all the way through. No hesitation. No. <laughs> I wanted to go to Kentucky. So, um, uh, and then got interrupted and said, wait, wait, before you make that decision, I want to show you something. And then off to my left was this flash of light. Back in my day, uh, cameras came with a little, when I was a kid, with little bulbs that, you know, you'd flash. It'd be this bright, blinding light. And then you'd yeah. have to lick your fingers and take the hot bulb out to do another picture. It was that kind of a blinding light. But again, didn't hurt the eyes that I didn't have in my head, but yet was seeing with. And I was told that if I chose to live, that would be where I live. And it was where mountains met water. And I knew it was in Kansas, but there was no other information. And I went, okay, thanks. And off I'm off to <laughs> my heaven. And before I was all the way through, again, interrupted. It's like, yeah, now what, God? And I was shown, um, it's like a picture gallery. And there were maybe a dozen of them. And there were people that I would be significantly interacting with should I choose to live. Mm. Oh, they were strangers. What did I care? Yeah. But, but they had labels. I could read them like in English. Best friend, next door neighbor, colleague, mentor. I mean, it went on like that. Wow. Yeah. Very, very rare in a near-death experience to have a life preview. Mm-hmm. There are life reviews, but yeah. this was a preview. And I didn't care. I'm off <laughs> to my heaven again. And then again, it was like, nah, nah. and there was a third big flash of light. And I saw myself being of service, something I really hadn't been. And um, I said, cool. I remember that so well. Like, cool. Well, who knew God was a hippie? Cool was like an affirmative action item, I guess. It was yeah. like, okay, you've made your decision. I was like, what? And as I was exiting, so again, on God's terms, God believes I volunteered to come back. I'm going to go. <laughs> no, I think you tricked me, God. You got me good. <laughs> but um, uh, on the way out, I, I heard a woman's voice calling my name. I have no idea what that was about and then the words that I would forget except as it would be manifest and I'm glad for that word because mm-hmm. I had to look it up and manifest means obvious mm-hmm. so the things were topsy-turvy and, and I, I did recover um, I've had no cardiac events since then if that was the case it was a, a one-time thing um, but I, I didn't know my life anymore. I didn't know who I was. I, I, and I knew, but I didn't know. I felt like um, I'd been stuffed like into a sausage. Mm-hmm. It was, I felt, well, I felt like in the movie Aladdin, you've had a child, you know, kids watch movies they like over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My little girl, when she was little, loved Aladdin. Mm-hmm. And, in, in the movie Aladdin, the Disney movie, Robin Williams, um, he's asked, what is it like to be a genie? And the genie says, 
all the powers of the universe, itty bitty living space. Yeah. That's what it's like to be, for me, to be back. To come back, yeah. Itty bitty living space. But I feel like our spirits are ginormous. We're just squashed into the body. So off I went, and I I didn't know where Went was. I I had a hamster named Toto. Oh, here comes my favorite metaphor. I had a hamster named Toto. Put Toto in a bird cage in the front seat of a Volkswagen square back that I bought. Mm -hmm. And off I went. I left Kansas. Um, I got to uh, I-70, which at the time was a tollway, east, west coast. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, the mountains, if mountains meet water, it must be to the left. And uh, and I began to get scared, and I cried. And uh, Oprah Winfrey has what she calls the, the ugly cry. It's where your canines shut. You know, you're just there's mucus, your mouse in odd shapes, and mm-hmm. it's you know, it's wailing. And I began to wail. And I said, I don't want change. I hate change. I don't want to change. Went on and on. And then as I approached the toll area, there's a big sign that said, change needed. Oh wow. <laughs> okay. So that's the ride we're going to be on. Yeah. Indeed, it was. And then because of all the mucus, the other thing is that I don't. I guess my mom put a box of tissues in the car that I needed to blow my nose. And I looked down and there was a white tissue box that said Kimberly Clark, which was my name, mm-hmm. like Kimberly Clark Paper Company, although I'm yeah. not that Kimberly Clark. Uh-huh. So it's like, oh, good one. <laughs> so I've had that relationship with God ever since. We oh, just wow. play. So uh, fast forwarding through lots of... Um, amazing spiritual experiences that got me finally to Seattle, including uh, actually living on Haight Street in San Francisco during the time of hippies. And it was startling to me that I actually was living on a street named Haight when I had so much love. Yeah. So much love. So I have to ask you, so you were, you said you were in college at the time you had the the cardiac arrest, if if that's what it was. Um, did you, you just, did you just quit school and just get in your van and start driving? No, no, no. I, I finished school and okay. bought a car and, okay. uh, and then headed out. Yeah. So okay. time passed. Um, but the hippie culture was perfect for me because it was all about peace and love at that time, again, 1970. Mm-hmm. So that was great. But then no matter where I stopped and there was, you know, Chapter three of the book I wrote, but there were always these events that happen. Again, these amazing spiritual experiences. But uh, I was pushed to go into Seattle. And once I crossed that city line, it's like everything went, huh. So I was in Seattle where I still live. But the big metaphor is that I left Kansas with Toto. We actually had a tornado in Hayes, Kansas. I had to take shelter. And I wound up living in Seattle, which then as Emerald now, City. is the Emerald City. Yeah. That's Isn't wild. that great? That's why I, yeah. I just love the God stuff. I just love all the synchronicity and the metaphors and the the in jokes and yeah. of my life is observing them and living them. But anyway, so to answer your original question about how did I get into this? Yeah. It wasn't my near-death experience uh, that I'm aware of, but it certainly played a part 
again, back to I've never applied for a job. I went to graduate school, never paid a dime of tuition. Everything was laid out. My my own metaphor is that I live on the automatic door opener of the grocery store. Doors <laughs> just open for me and I enter. There's a lot of work within those doors, mm-hmm. especially in the field of death and dying. Yeah. A lot of hard work. Yeah. But I carried uh, a secret weapon. And that was, I have no fear of death. And I know that the that we live on, maybe not in human form, but we live on as ourselves mm-hmm. after what we call death. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I was very comforting as I, again, was uh, synchronicity put me into the field of death and dying and mm-hmm. into a place called Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, which is again, then as now, <clears throat> trauma center for one-fourth of the landmass of the United States. So there's a whole lot of death and dying going on, and I worked as a social worker mm-hmm. on the intensive care unit and coronary care unit. Oh, wow. Again, yeah. nice places for someone like me to be, yeah. to provide comfort. Right. In April of 1977, when, and I was ambitious, I was in the University of Washington system because Harborview was part of that um, academic system. I I wanted to get promoted, you know, climb the academic ladder. Didn't have any idea about the research I wanted to do. I I just, everything bored me. One day, she says, taking a deep breath, though, everything changed. And uh, there was a woman admitted named Maria. Uh, She came in the night before I was to go on duty again. I work Monday through Friday, but during the day, uh, she was unconscious when she was admitted. She was a direct admit to the coronary care unit. Uh, the next day when I got there, um, she was alert, uh, but I needed a translator. I took some Spanish, three years of Spanish in high school, not enough to do a, a good workup. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we needed a translator. We needed some money. We needed to find her family. She was actually a migrant worker from the Yakima Valley area, about 100 miles east of um, Seattle, big agricultural area. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so, you know, I threw a translator. I worked her up and went on my merry way. And I am so sorry about the phone ringing in the background. We'll get back to grief to growth in just a few seconds. Did you know that Brian is an author and a life coach? If you're grieving or know someone who is grieving, his book, Grief to Growth, is a best-selling, easy-to-read book that might help you or someone you know. People work with Brian as a life coach to break through barriers and live their best lives. You can find out more about Brian and what he offers at www.grieftogrowth.com, www.grief, the number two, growth.com, or text growth, G-R-O-W-T-H, to 31996. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash grief to growth, www.patreon.com slash G-R-I-E-F, the number two, G-R-O-W-T-H, to make a financial contribution. And now, back to grief to growth. That's all right. It happens. I, I really apologize. The thing is, I took the phone and I turned it off. But what's happening is that the bass is ringing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hi there. I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe the NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. That happens to me too. I have one in my office. I I have to unplug the base from it. I've even turned off myself. I can't believe. And it's going to be a telemarketer because it rang four times the telemarketer is saying out. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, listeners, for the interview. It's all right. Go ahead. Okay. Um, So you were with Maria. Yeah. So uh, three days after she was admitted, I was doing some charting Mm -hmm. up in the coronary care unit. And one of the monitors indicated flatline situation. Happens all the time at Harborview. I was used to it. The staff was used to it. Everybody thundered down. It was Maria. Mm. And she needed to be resuscitated. I stood in the doorway, watched a very easy resuscitation. She was stabilized. She was still unconscious, but I went about my day. Just before quitting time, I got paged by her nurse saying that Maria was awake and alert, but very agitated. They couldn't find the translator. Could I come up? They didn't want her flipping back into cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So I did. I couldn't find a translator. So what I'm about to tell you is a goofier interview than was actually accomplished. But first she told me, and now we're talking like pigeon traveler language, uh, that she was out of her body and she showed me the corner that she was in and looked down and she could see everyone there and the machinery they were using. And one little clue was that she described all the paper on the floor. And indeed, uh, my skeptical response, because I was skeptical, because I didn't know what had happened to me. Everything Mm -hmm. was still mixed up and jumbled. So I had decided now that I was a social worker and uh, a licensed clinician that I was crazy. Mm. This was like a highly functioning form of schizophrenia. And that was my ooh, ooh, little dirty secret. In mm. fact, once I went through the emergency room at Harborview, because I had to do that to get to my job, and there was a woman that looked a lot like me that was sitting on a gurney in two-point restraints, which is the wrist. Mm-hmm. She looked miserable. And I just said, she was so young. And I said, what's, what's the deal with her to one of the residents? And, and he said, oh, we're taking her up to lock in psych. She feels like she's been going in and out of her body. And I just went, ah. yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. so zip it, Kim. So from that point on, I, I didn't even try to speak about it. Hmm. So now I'm hearing a woman that I've already certified as sane telling me she was out of her body. And, and this paper on the floor stuff was not part of her education. Actually, back then... Um, cardiac information came out of big, wide, wide mouth machines, spilled out, got kicked into the bed, uh, and then upon recovery or death, torn off, studied by the cardiology team, and hmm. wouldn't have known that. Then she said, like that, snap of the fingers, she found herself outside of the entrance to the emergency room, 
And uh, again, I thought, nah, nah, nah. You know, her room is above the entrance to the emergency room. And I knew she hadn't gotten out of bed, but mm-hmm. maybe someone pushed her bed over by the window. Ignoring the fact there's a roof over every emergency room entrance because of weather. Right, yeah. She couldn't see the entrance, so she couldn't be describing the one-way driveway, the automatic doors, you know. But again, I'm going, nah, nah. Because now, you know, it was was getting a little uh-uh for Mm -hmm. me. Then she said she spotted a tennis shoe while she was out and about, outside on a ledge. Hmm. She didn't know where. She thought she was three or four stories above the ground, didn't know in what direction. Harborview is a mammoth building. And so uh, she wanted someone to find the shoe. And that's why she was agitated. She she knew that she was out there. It wasn't like it was a bad thing. She just wanted someone to bring her the shoe. So mm-hmm. I set out to look for it. I failed miserably going around the building. And so I went in the building, started out, you know, the luck of the Kim on the wrong side of the building. So what I'm describing took some time, Mm -hmm. but I got to the west side of the building, went into a patient's room because the window was blocked by a cart. And so in those situations, I actually had to go into someone's hospital room. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They were all my own patients though. And um, got to this one window and looked down she had described a dark blue large shoe with a little toe scuffed out and a white lace under the heel. Hmm. In case I should get it confused with any other <laughs> on a ledge, like what? Yeah. And one might want to know what in the heck was one shoe doing on a ledge anyway? I don't know. Yeah. But, um, I looked down, I saw the shoe. It was dark blue. It was definitely a man's shoe. I didn't see the little scruffy part because it was outside of my vision, but I could see a white lace coming under and I almost passed out. I lost the ability to bear my own weight. Hmm. I went forward and banged my head on the glass glass and out loud. I said, this happened to me. Hmm. And I remember seeing my breath momentarily on the glass and it was my watershed moment. So I took the shoe, went back to Maria. I'm, mean i hit it behind my back and said can you tell me about the inside of the shoe she said no i never saw that <laughs> then i produced it it was like viva zapata yeah really. <laughs> it was the shoe mm-hmm. and back then it's gonna be hard for listeners to understand i really am telling the truth about this but back then patients actually stayed in the hospital until they were well enough to go home yeah, 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 back in the old days. Nothing in place now, but back then. Yeah. So Maria was in the hospital for three weeks, and that shoe sat there like the Shroud of Turin. It received massive amounts of visitors. Mm. She seemed so authentic. I seemed so authentic. And there was the shoe. Mm-hmm. When she discharged, she gave me the shoe. It's somewhere in our garage. Um, it's not like she left my life. I followed her as an outpatient for three years. Mm-hmm. So, and then um, I went on a leave of absence for a few months, came back, never saw her again. And don't know what happened to her. I have yeah. no, I have wow. no idea. So that's the shoe heard around the world now. It's officially an urban legend. It's been yes. described as being black, as blue, as red, a doctor, a male nurse, a female nurse. Yeah, I've heard it as a red shoe. Mm-mm. Yeah, it was a dark blue shoe. It okay. was me. 
who found it. Yeah. At Harbor Green Medical Center on a ledge, not on a roof. Yeah. So uh, Kenneth Ring did hear from, uh, I think it was an, an RN in Connecticut who saw a red shoe on a roof, but that person was never found. The shoe was never found. Okay. So I get confused with my own story, but as okay. long as I live, here's the horse's mouth. It was, it was the shoe I found. Yeah. And still have. Wow. So, yeah. So big wow. And many skeptics have tried to uh, pierce that story. None have been successful. There's, you know, and, but it's helped me collect skeptical responses. Yeah. And then yeah. I can pierce those balloons easy, easy, squeezy. But it did give me my research launch. And so I began to interview, or not interview, I already interviewed everybody who's admitted. But um, I began to add for those people admitted in cardiac arrest, the questions, um, what do you remember when you were dead? Well, basically, it was that one question that was couched in three questions. And right. I got nothing for two months. And then in June of that year, a 16-year-old was admitted to the intensive care unit. And that's unusual. Uh, usually, they, kids went to a children's hospital. But anyway... Uh, and I asked her, you know, because she had been resuscitated, you know, what do you remember about being dead? And by then I was going nothing. And she bounced right back. Unlike Maria, who stumbled for hours trying to find words, of course, Spanish words. Yeah. Uh, this this gal said, oh, I was with my upa. And I was like, what? And I didn't know what an upa was. Well, it mm-hmm. turns out upa was what she called her grandfather before he died. And um, she just couldn't say grandpa. She was so young. And he held her and rocked her and comforted her and then sent her back. Wow. This was a suicide attempt. She had taken an overdose of uh, prescription medications, barbiturates to be exact. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he scolded her. But it wasn't like a hellbound thing. He just said, no, you got to get back in the game, kiddo. Yeah. And so she survived. She's also someone I followed for a long time. She had mental health issues. She was inpatient for a while, outpatient for a while. We still kept in touch. And when she was fully recovered, the two of us would go to high school assemblies in our county, King County in Seattle. And she would talk to kids as a kid about, don't you even think about trying to hurt yourself? Mm -hmm. Don't do it. And she was such a reliable source of information. It was fantastic. She just finally aged out of it. So yeah. there you go. And then in 1982, I started the Seattle International Association for Near-Death Studies, which was the first group of its kind, support group. But the International Associations of Near-Death Studies, or IONS, for right. org, is just the best. It's still the only organization exclusively addressing near-death experiences. And Mm -hmm. I love the organization. I help to represent the organization. And uh, because of that, I have met now countless people. So between, and then I went into, you know, cancer care. Then I did a year study at Children's Hospital, uh, exclusively interviewing kids who survived cardiac arrest. And uh, those were through drawings and on and on and on. Yeah. And there you go. Ta-da. Yeah. So before we started, you told me that you were, uh, you had experience with a teenager that had a heart related near death experience. Yes. 
So uh, in Seattle, Ions, one day came, at the time he was 19, his experience happened at 14 or 15. Hmm. Um, took him that long to find us. Uh, he was a cardiac cripple. Uh, he had never run, skipped, jumped, or played ever in his life. He was spent most of his life in bed with, you know, breathing problems because of just, you know, low, low cardiac input. Um, mm-hmm. And was very, 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 very sick kid. Used to going in and out of our children's hospital um, and was, uh, he had brothers and sisters, but everything was centered around him because of his healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. So one night, I mean, he knew the drill, but one night he had crushing chest pain and he reached out for help. He couldn't draw a big enough breath. And he knocked over his bedside lamp, crashed to the floor, hoping it would attract attention. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it didn't. So um, he got up out of bed and walked to his sister's bedroom, which was the closest bedroom, and went in to awaken her and reached down to shake her awake. But his hand went through her and through the mattress. Mm. It's like, uh-oh, he was out of body. In his case, whereas Maria felt like she was just pure mind, and wherever she wanted to go, it was, again, like that. I want to go over there, and she was immediately there. Mm-hmm. It was all, like, mental, if you will. Mm-hmm. This guy felt completely physical, but was um, was invisible. Yeah. Felt like, and he couldn't be heard. But he just was screaming anyway to his sister, and somehow that she roused and he somehow was able to reach her Hmm. telepathically, if you will. And so she got up and went into his room and he wasn't responsive, called his parents. In the meantime, they come and running. He's still walking around. He is completely with his family, Hmm. fully present. Again, the him that was him wasn't, in that body. Right. And he was trying to comfort his family. They're waiting for medic one to come. And he said, I'm here. I'm great. I'm doing, I'm fine. Hmm. This, this is all good. So, um, and then he was out of body in the ambulance, which, so off we go. That's, a, I have two stories about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, two people, people I've interviewed who have ambulance memories out of body. Uh, one of the guys wrote on top of the ambulance, <laughs> your life. But um, anyway, he was, so he was there, you know, with the medics working on him and going, you know, well, this is interesting. And um, in the hospital, he loses track of his memory, but um, he was told by a loving presence that he also called God, that he was going to be Okay. And he was going to be cured of heart disease. Medically, that doesn't make sense. Not the right. only kid who I've interviewed who's had this experience, a deadly disease, and upon recovery and a near-death experience were completely healed. Hmm. He was so healed that he got up in front of our group and started doing jumping jacks and showed us his arms, which 
his his veins forearms were still affected by low oxygen so his veins were different looking than most kids bulgier mm. uh, and bluer mm-hmm. um and uh he because he was with god he decided to turn his life over to god he became a christian hmm. his family rejected him entirely because they were not having any of that mm-hmm. and he couldn't shut up about jesus and about god and about love and he wanted everybody to know how we're all loved and and uh you know the bible is the truth and and all that That's that became his mission. yeah so um he his his we were in touch for a long time we're out of touch now but uh uh he got older, he decided to move to Anchorage and open uh, a mission for people to preach the word of Jesus. And he had a brother that said, no, I'm with you. I believe you. We're going together. They both went. The brother actually wound up taking over the successful mission. This is a street ministry. While our hero then applied for the Anchorage Fire Department. You don't get into any fire department with cardiac disease. He was that physically fit by then, had a career in the fire department, then decided to go to nursing school and did, and became a nurse. Wow. And over time, we just lost track. But that was his story. And uh, yeah, I wanted to share that because it's interesting. It is. It's really interesting. And, you know, my daughter passed from cardiac disease and uh, we found her you know, the next morning. And, yeah. I, and I wonder, you know, sometimes was she in the room, you know, when, when we, we found her and I, and I think she probably was. Um, I'd put some money on it if I had some money. Yeah. To be honest. I, based on that, not only the story I told you, but countless, you know, people say, you know, I've interviewed thousands of people. I mm-hmm. it, someone did do a head count in 1994, and it was like a lot then, but it's even more now. So I have lots and lots of stories that would give you um, pause mm-hmm. and reflection. And I'm going to say, yeah, she was right with you. I mean, I wasn't there, but again, based on. Again, so many near-death experience stories that I've heard. And by the way, I don't hear near-death experience stories. I am with that person. I only count them if I can touch them, if I can hold their hand, if I can hug them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's been over the phone. Sometimes it's been, um, no, it's never been over the internet. It's either been on the phone, but overwhelmingly in person, where I can look them in the eye. Yeah. And that's a special relationship. So when I say a lot of people, I mean not anyone else's cases, not any OI here tell. Yeah. First hand accounts. Yeah. First hand accounts. So I would like for you, if you would care to, to believe that she was with you out of love. Yeah. Love is the strongest tie that there is in the whole universe. And so she would be very attached mm-hmm. and would love you to this day. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 I go away. Yeah, I, I do believe that, and I, I think I was saying earlier, I, I hear from her all the time. Uh, usually, it's through through someone else, but I hear for, and she sends me signs, and I mean, just just amazing, overwhelming, crazy signs. Uh, I I get that. I get those from deceased loved ones too. Yeah. So how does how does a near death experience how does that affect the process of grief if we're going through grief? Well, good question. So I'm going to answer two prong. One is that it doesn't, in one sense, because if we love somebody and we lose them to death, we're going to miss them. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, actually, I'm name dropping. Do you know who she is? I do. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a friend. We worked together. She loved me mm-hmm. and uh, blessed me tremendously with her work. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, she came out with these five stages of loss, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which she wished, by the way, she hadn't done because it wasn't a recipe. You know, yeah. it was like stages. And then also um, there was a stage that she would have added and that would be the last stage, which was the stage of yearning. Hmm. And that never goes away. As long as we love someone, we yearn to hear from them. We yearn to see them again. Yeah. We miss them. The near-death experience does not diminish that yearning. Right. And that, and the, the agony of loss. Well, you know, here's the deal, Brian. This is where the hugs are. This is this is one of the things our bodies do well. Mm-hmm. We hug. Yeah. And we do some other things well, like eat and run and play and laugh yeah. and all that. But the hugs are here. That ends when we shed this physical body. Yeah. So on that level, near-death experiences don't matter. But on a spiritual level, it's all good because we don't, we can't see our loved ones, but that doesn't mean they're not with us. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to be greeting us. Um, you know, that head count I told you about a few mm-hmm. minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, actually a physician in Miami, Florida. She studied my own caseload and uh, determined that um, 3% of my caseload at that time, again, 1994, uh, had, people had gone through a tunnel. So actually not very common. 10% had seen a light. Again, not all that common. Um, 13% had scary experiences. That's a very high level of reportage, but I was my sub areas of expertise under the banner of near-death experiences are children's experiences, um, suicide attempts, and scary experiences. So I I talk to a disproportionate number of people who fall into those categories. But the reunion with deceased loved ones was at 75%. Statistically, it might as well be 100. That's a huge, huge number. And the people that were being greeted as they were having a near-death experience were greeted by just love. Sometimes it was deceased loved ones, sometimes by a religious figure, sometimes by what I call God, but they were greeted and welcomed and loved. But where the near-death experience really bangs home the 
the grief topic is that our loved ones are always with us if they choose to be. Right. And they are there with their own heavenly arms out waiting for us. And um, that brings me comfort. Yeah. You know, it, when you were saying that, I was thinking, I, I work with uh, people that have got, gone through grief. Um, so that's part of my, part of the work that I do. And sometimes people will ask, well, when will the grief end? You know, when will it, when will, when will it be over? When can I go back to normal? I'm like, well, it never ends. And I don't want my grief to ever end because it's the yearning thing that you talked about. I still, it's, it'll be five years in June since Shana passed and I still yearn for her. And I always want to have that. I don't want to lose that. Um, yeah. There's, there's two sides of it. As you said, there's, there's the human side of it where we miss them and we long for them and, and that's fine. That's okay. But there's, there is a great comfort in knowing that I will see her again. And not only that, but she's still with me. So we can carry both of these things at the same time. And, you know, sometimes we, we're going to miss them. We're going to have those, those grief moments. There's those uh, maybe even days where we feel like, you know, I just can't you know, do this anymore or whatever. But for me, there's always that light at the end of the tunnel. There's always that that I'm looking forward. So I, don't, I look at my life now as moving towards her. You know, for, for a while, it was like when she, she was only 15 when she passed. So I'm like, I'm not going to see her for the rest of my life. And I felt like I was moving away from her and, and losing those memories and stuff. And now I, don't, I look at it more like I'm looking forward to seeing her again. So that's the way that I, I find it works for me. And I cross my heart. I promise you, you will. Yeah. It's a promise. You know, it's cool. Um, you will probably be very old mm. when you die. <laughs> kind of my sense. But when we're greeted by loved ones, they all appear like at their peak. If someone is very old, they appear to be in their 20s. Uh, if someone is very young, they still are kind of like in their 20s, like in their peak physical existence. Now, maybe that's not what they really are on the other side. I haven't ever been dead, dead. Yeah. And I've never interviewed a corpse. And I don't want to. Yeah. So I only know about the threshold experiences, the, the U-turns. But um, we are known, though, by like our energy. I mean, we can, you know, it, it's more than just a visual. Mm -hmm. Although when people are greeted by loved ones, uh, it is a physical recognition. Mm -hmm. Even though in the case of like grandparents, they didn't look like that yeah. when they died, but yet they're still known. And uh, by the way, it's not just humans. It's also pets. Yeah. Cats and dogs and fishies and duckies and horses. I, I've got lots of, of I do a whole <laughs> lecture on, on animals in the afterlife because a lot of people don't have loved ones, especially kids. Yeah. But they have maybe a deceased pet and and even adults. I'm not kidding with the goldfish. Um, but, yeah, that we are greeted by loved ones. Some of them might have four legs, fur or feathers or fins. Yeah. Loved ones, nonetheless. Well, and some of those loved ones, you know, the, the pets are, I mean, they they are as close to us as humans are. And people that don't have pets, you know, can't understand that. But, you know, for some of us, uh, you know, those pets are they're closer than any human bond we've ever had because it's, it's unconditional yeah. love. Exactly. And again, Brian, it's all about love. 
Mm-hmm. It, it just all boils down to that. We were made with love. Why some people suffer on this earth? Again, I have to just turn it over to God. I, I don't get it, even though I was told why. Why some people are cruel. Um, you know, social workers, so don't get me started on that. I have very strong opinions. but sure. And I'm a marcher. And I'm a protester, you know, I, I do what I can to, to right the wrongs. I, I don't understand hatred. I don't understand uh, um, dictatorships and, and the Holocaust and I mean, the whole, you know, uh, cruelty that we mm-hmm. can do to each other. I, mm-hmm. I just don't get it. Um, but I can do what I can as a loving person and do my one little human being bit to rectify damage and there's endless opportunities for that yeah so that's part of my being of service i was sent back to serve so there you go i it it feeds my soul and um and i know it pleases god because i'm blessed yeah well i think we all wrestle with that that theodicy question, you know, if there's a, there's a loving God, then why did it, why is there evil in the world? And we can, you know, there, there's some answers, you know, it gives us something to, you couldn't serve if there weren't a need, for example. So. Exactly. There's a good point. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's no opportunity if there's no need. So there has to be, there has to be some lack something. And, and so then it just becomes a matter of degrees, right? So, cause if we, if we allow for the fact there has to be something here, for us to push back against, for us to overcome, to grow stronger than people say, well, then why, why is it this bad? And what I, what I say to people is, well, bad is relative because as we all know, and as you know, better than anybody, this is temporary. You know, this is, this is just something that we're passing through. It, it seems really, really bad while we're in it. And it seems like it's going to last forever, but it, nothing lasts forever. And when we're, when we're back on the other side, I think we look at this and go, ah, it, it wasn't that bad. We, we kind of forget. You know how, how bad it was when we were here. It's like childbirth. You yeah. wouldn't know the pain of that, but uh, any woman who's given birth knows what pain is. Mm-hmm. But then we we forget about it enough to go, I think I'll do it again. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I'm not a Buddhist, but I can see that where we want to jump back into life and, and have another go at it. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm so grateful I'm not God. I don't have to even think about it. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I think of my daughter, Shana, and we love video games. And the thing is, if you're if you're a game designer, you have to design a game that's hard enough that it presents a challenge, but it's got to be easy enough that people get some success. And so there's always this balance when you're designing a game to make it interesting. But to be interesting, it's got to be challenging. And I think that's kind of the way this life was designed. We I think we come in and we we build these challenges for ourselves to say, yeah, can I, let me see if I can do that. Let me see if I can if I can overcome that. And maybe sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. Or, uh, but I oh, think yeah. I think once it's over, we we kind of say, ah, you know, that was tough, but I got through it. And if you think about the things in life that you get the most out of, they're the things that presented the biggest challenges to you. Those are the things that are the most satisfying. Yeah, uh, got a lot of metaphors on this subject too. Um, I'm grateful, even though I don't like the challenges I've had. And I've, you know, in the balance of things, uh, again, you haven't read the book I wrote, but I've had mm-hmm. some astonishing losses. 
and uh, and challenges. Mm-hmm. But um, I have two metaphors, I guess. One is that it helps me uh, increase my spiritual musculature. Mm-hmm. I'm stronger for it. There's no question. And it's it, my my actually the metaphor I use the most is a bouncing ball. I'm slammed down, but like a good bouncy ball, you bounce up higher. Mm-hmm. And so I keep bouncing higher and higher and higher. But what I'm really grateful for is that, again, back to being in service, I can turn to people in pain or grief and say, I know how you feel. Yeah. And the person I'm speaking with knows that I know how you feel. Right. I mean, you right. can't fake that. I really can bring it right. because I've been through it. Mm-hmm. And um, I wouldn't trade that for it anything so now when awful things happen to me what helps me pull out of it is like okay there's a population of people now that i can also serve right yeah i i haven't spoken with them yet but got my first uh covid near-death experiencer this will date your broadcast we're in a pandemic Mm -hmm. and uh, i got a call last week from a healthcare provider from uh, one of our COVID hospitals and we'd had a near-death experience, beautiful near-death experience. So we'll be hearing more of those and then more opportunities to be of comfort and to guide those people into comforting others because it's all ripple effect or it, right. yeah, it's gotta be. Right. And that's why we have to look at these things. They're, they're opportunities. They're opportunities for us to grow. And as you said, to, to build compassion um, and but other people go through that. There's an opportunity for us to serve. So, um, I guess maybe for now we have to take it on faith that it serves a higher purpose, but I've heard enough in there to, that's experiences to believe that it does. And remember I was talking with a woman, Heidi Craig, uh, the hat on, and she said, she learned three things. One is um, everything will be okay. Everything is as it should be. And we are loved beyond anything that we can imagine. And so we, I, I, I remember her saying those three things. I'm like, if we can keep those three things in mind, we can endure anything. And, and she's been through some crazy stuff, you know? So for someone, it's not like she's led a charmed life. It'd be easy if someone led a charmed life to say, oh yeah, everything's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but, you know, she's been through a lot of abuse that was very serious. And she still says, yeah, I believe this was all meant to be. So. Yes. And I would, as a near-death experiencer, completely agree. And also, no one's asking for my advice, but here it comes. Just be nice to everybody. Mm-hmm. Just be nice. Nothing else. There's the life review waiting. Yeah. I plan to have a doozy. You know, maybe that erases everything because I'm doing it, so I'll have a good life review. I don't know, but um, we are held accountable eventually, and uh, I want when I do die, God to go well done. Yeah. But is a life review, is God judging you in the life review or is it you judging yourself? Oh, okay. Well, now here we go for another hour. <laughs> um, in my experience, I only can talk about my experience. Mm-hmm. So if there are listeners that go, well, I haven't heard that before, or I heard so-and-so say something different, that's fine. This is mm-hmm. just me. Uh, the life review comes in t- two different flavors, if you will. Mm -hmm. One is um, 
where uh, we are shown the our crops, so to speak. You know, the Bible says by by their fruits they shall be known. Mm-hmm. We're shown our fruits. Some of them are awful. <laughs> Some of them are wonderful. But we're shown our choices. And one fellow I talked to, uh, I've got so many stories, my head's going to explode. One fellow, though, was sitting in a big chair with a bundle of, like, cables bound on his lap. But the cables went out in all directions. And at the end were words that he could read. And they were like uh, military, uh, marriage, children, college choices, you know, more choices than he could make in a Mm -hmm. lifetime. Mm -hmm. And he was shown the choices that he did make consciously or unconsciously and the repercussions and how it was like connecting the dots. So because you chose to do this, that led to this, which led to that. Remember when you broke your leg? Well, you married your nurse, Mm -hmm. you know, that just all that kind of connectiveness. Mm -hmm. So that's not a judgment. It's like a, a life observation, if you will. Okay. Another life review is uh, the old judgment, but it doesn't come from God or even exactly from oneself. It's when people are put in the experience from the perspective of the person whose life they've touched. Mm -hmm. Again, for the positive or the not so positive. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to use the name, Tom Sawyer. Easy to remember. Now deceased, but Tom Sawyer was quite the guy and a good friend. And he had a near-death experience that was very prolonged, very interesting, uh, amazing, in fact. But um, he was a hot-tempered guy who uh, expressed that temper physically and emotionally to his family, Mm. his two sons and his wife. He was brutal, I would say. Um, got crushed working on his car in the driveway. Jack broke, crushed his sternum. Lots of things happened. So this mean abuser, he would not mind if I said that about him because that left him. But he, in his life review, was in the position of his wife, of his children, as they were being abused, down to itty-bitty little details that he really doesn't even remember. He found himself in an idling car and he looked in the side view mirror and saw Tom Sawyer approaching the car, very angry looking. Well, in, in his life, Tom had, he was a rage driver too, you know, road rage, we call it now. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the driving of the car in front of him when they came to a light. Tom got out of his car, he marched over there and grabbed the guy like this wow. and punched him in a roundhouse, assaulted him. Wow. Okay. Now Tom is having a life review and um, he sees himself coming towards now the perspective of the man. And he felt the blow, the fear, the confusion, the pain of it all. Mm-hmm. So that isn't judgment from God. That's right. judgment from the perspective of lives we have touched. It also goes in the other direction, whether we know it or not. Oh, one woman, oh my gosh, she had a she had a life review where um, she had no idea this had even happened. She was driving, it was a dark and stormy night. And uh, she has no memory of this, but she found herself in the perspective of a woman driving behind her car. She 
recognized her own car. Hmm. This woman was lost. It was using the taillights of this near-death experiencer to not get yeah. way off the road yeah. Yeah. and up to northbound Interstate 5, which is where she wanted to go. The, the near-death experiencer had no knowledge of this, but she got the she got the credit for it. She got to feel this woman's relief and and happiness at being found, if you will, after being lost in, in dark and, and uh, nasty weather. Mm-hmm. So that's one of me. I mean, I, I have so many life review stories. It's ridiculous. It gets back to be nice to everybody. Yeah. That you get to, to know whether, whether you remember the exchange or not, how good someone felt because you existed. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, you know, you mentioned earlier, I look at it as like planting seeds, you know, like you, like you, you mentioned, yeah. but so it's like you plant the seed here. You may or may not see it grow while you're here, but have faith that, that you're planting seeds. And Jesus said, store up treasures, you know, in heaven. That's where your heart is. Right. So that's the way we can send things ahead to ourselves. We can, we can send these gifts ahead to ourselves while we're here. So that's, that's a that's another way of looking at it, but it, it comes down to be nice to everybody. You know, you can't go wrong with that. Yeah, pretty simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's I can't add anything to that. Be nice. So, Kim, uh, tell me more about your book. I'm lousy at self promotion, so thank you. <laughs> Again, like everything, I didn't want to write a book. In fact, I hate writing. And yet the book uh, actually is in the Library of Congress and won a writing award. It was the alternate book of the month for the uh, Literary Guild of the United States and Canada. So, I, you know, I got a big check for writing well. Yeah. Um, it's in its fourth edition. It's called After the Light mm-hmm. Figure. Uh, the first chapter is the story of the shoe on the ledge. Okay. Second chapter is my near-death experience. Third chapter is getting to Seattle, which is like crazy. And then we haven't even touched on that, but the fourth chapter is when, you know, I began um, visions of not only what we call angels, and I'm big on angels. That's another interview, by the way. Brian. You don't have to do that one. I'm, 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 on I'm interested in that. Yeah. But also scary stuff. So chapter four is the scary stuff. But mm. I began to see uh, some scary stuff and lots of angels around my patients, around people uh, at concerts and uh, libraries and schoolhouses. Oh my gosh, they're all over the place. So uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was pregnant and I had eight to 10 months to live uh, as long as I remained pregnant and I chose to remain pregnant. Um, This is how I understand the grief of a parent. In fact, the book is dedicated to David Eugene Sharp. Hmm. I was pregnant with David, tried a vaginal delivery. He did not survive. Hmm, sorry. So, but I could yeah. do something with that loss too Yeah. and put it in this book. So all of that is in there too. And I hear more from parents than any other population because hmm. of that. So that's in the book. So because I had, you know, not that long to live, I thought I better get all this stuff down. Yeah. So I got it all down and I did survive and through no means of my own. I never was ambitious about writing a book, but it was just thrust upon me. You've got to do this and lots of synchronicities. And 
It became a book. It went to auction in New York City, which unknown authors, that doesn't happen to. Uh, I got well paid, and it, it, it allows me to not be present, but to still serve and bring comfort to people. Mm-hmm. So, and I've never chased the money, which drives my husband nuts because <laughs> he'd like for me to do a little money chasing, but yeah. um, he's a good provider, loves me. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I annoy him frequently because I'm just not in it for the money. So that's part of my false modesty, I guess. I'm proud of the book. I want people to read the book, but I'm not selling it. You know, I mean, it has to yeah. be purchased. Because well, you got to go on Amazon or to Barnes and Noble to get it, but yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the right place, and I know it. Yeah, it sounds so. like a fascinating book. So let's make sure that everybody knows what it is. It's uh, "After the Light: The Spiritual Path to Purpose" by Kimberly Clark Sharp, and you said it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, I guess anywhere fine books are sold. Yeah, um, it sounds it Still sounds fascinating. There. Yeah, you'll have to come back. We'll have to talk about angels. I don't. We'll talk about scary stuff too, I guess. I don't, I don't really, I like to stick more to the light stuff, but we'll talk about what the scary stuff no, is. But the scary stuff leads to the light stuff. Yeah. 100% of the time. It's back to the white knuckle ride of being alive. Yeah. And I guess it all depends on how you look at it. Yeah. I look at it fearlessly. Yeah. Well, Kim, it's been fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate you uh, doing the interview. And bless you. I, I, mean that with my whole heart. Bless you. Bless the work that you're doing, Brian. Um, God is pleased with you as well as me. Yeah, you're a, you're a good job. Well, thanks. I, I, I appreciate that very much. I, I love bringing these stories to to the, to the listeners to hopefully inspire. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Kenneth Ring, and I know he did a lot of work that people who study near-death experiences can get some of the same benefits that near-death experiencers have without going through the trauma. So that's why I love having people on that have near-death experiences. Yeah. As you By tell the way, your... Ken Ring was in that gallery that I saw. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So we were bound to be friends. And yeah, absolutely. We yeah. But we'll, we'll definitely have to do this again. I'd love it. All right. Well, you have a great I afternoon. Like you. So, yeah. <laughs> you as well, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm, I'm honored. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to make it really easy for you to reach me. So just send me a text to 31996 and simply text the word GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H. In fact, you can right now just say, hey Siri, send a message to 31996. And when Siri asks you what you want to send, just say GROWTH. You can do the same thing with OK Google. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and we'll come back for future episodes. Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate, and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash grief, the number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content.
and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth, visit www.grieftogrowth.com. Hey there, if you liked this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.